0: Hello, and welcome to The Verge Podcast, a part of the college and career ministry at First Baptist Dallas. I'm Kyle Wilson, and it's a pleasure to be a part of your day. I want to personally invite you to join us at our college and career ministry any Sunday at 9.15 a.m. or Wednesday night at 7 p.m. For more information, check out firstdallas.org college. This podcast is a recording of our weekly Sunday teachings, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, let's do it. Alright, well, it is the last week of the Book of James. Guys, we have been in this book for seven weeks, and uh, I feel like we just started. Uh, It's been an incredible journey to walk through this book with you all. Um, And I I would just like to say at the outset that uh, me writing this and me being able to go through this with you guys, I mean, the Book of James, it it is so applicable, so convicting. I mean, every time that I was writing and preparing uh, for each week, uh, I felt the Lord convicting me of several things in my own life, and so um, I'm, I'm glad and honored to have been able to go through this journey with you guys. So let's just finish it up. Uh, let's go through this intro one last time, I bet by now you guys are able to say it with me, but let's go ahead and do it. The Book of James. It was written by the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, which is this first Christian community that appeared. Uh, Peter, who helped it, he was leading it, but then he went off to start new churches. And so James steps into the role as pastor, as leader. And he was there in leadership for 20 years, where he was able to guide the church through famine, poverty, persecution. And really, the, this book is a legacy of his wisdom. Uh, A couple things that we've noted each and every week as we've gone through this is that first, while this is technically an epistle or a letter, uh, it's not like Paul's letters to the churches where he is addressing a specific issue within their community, but rather, as we see in chapter 1, he's writing to what he calls the 12 tribes in dispersion, which is this group of believers in the Jerusalem church that have scattered out after the stoning of Stephen. And so this is one of the reasons why this book is so powerful, and it's so encouraging to us because it's written to that general audience in mind. And then lastly, what we've talked about uh, every week is that this book doesn't teach new theology. There's no deep new uh, understanding of God or Jesus in this book, but rather it's a summation of James's wisdom where he pulls from a lot of times the book of Proverbs, um, but uh, a lot of it's just from learning from his half-brother Jesus. And we see a lot of, Uh, the Sermon on the Mount kind of interplaying within some of the text here. And so um, it challenges, this book challenges how the Christian reading it lives. Its main goal is that followers of Christ, you and I, would become truly wise by living out Jesus's summaries of the scripture, which is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And so over the past several weeks, we have gone through every little bit Uh, of this book. And today we are wrapping it up here in chapter five. And so let's just go ahead and jump in. We're going to be reading this in three different segments and kind of dissecting uh, three different thoughts that are occurring within this uh, ending passage. But let's just go ahead. James chapter five, starting verse seven, we'll go to verse 12. It says this, Therefore, brothers, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and late rains? You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts, because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers, don't complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name and as as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome from the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Now, above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. Your yes must be yes and your no must be no, so that you won't fall under judgment. The first thing here in James's final thoughts is that uh, you and I, Christians, uh, the people he's writing to, must have a proper attitude. He's coming right off of this discourse that we talked about last week that Caleb kind of covered over our resources and how the rich hoard their resources and they use it and lord it over people and so essentially the attitude of the rich that James was condemning is get all you can, get as fa- get as much as you can, as fast as you can in any way you can. James counseled a different attitude here to urge his readers, the rich the poor and everyone in between to practice patience he starts out by saying therefore brothers be patient until the Lord's coming therefore in light of this discussion on what it looks like to solely um, look at your earthly wealth wait for the Lord's coming don't focus on the things of earth don't focus on your wealth and everything you've attained but rather wait for the Lord's coming I love the word that he's using here, patience, because when we talk about patience, we mean just being able to wait well. But here, the word patience means self-restraint, which w- which does not hastily retaliate a wrong. This is the idea of patience, that not only am I waiting well? Am I restraining myself for something better? But I don't retaliate when I'm not getting what I want. That uh, patience is not an easy thing to go through. We, we don't want, like to wait, uh, especially millennials and some of the Gen Zers in here. We just don't wait well. And I think that's a lot of, to do with our culture as well. Um, and what happens is when we don't wait well, we hastily retaliate a wrong. For example, I know that when I pull up to Chick-fil-A, And there are workers standing before the drive-through that it's going to be a good day. Why? Because it's going to be a personal touch. They're going to get my order right. When I pull up later, they're going to say my name and it's going to be personal. But first and foremost, I get excited about it because it's faster. Uh, You know, not only do we just have one lane at Chick-fil-A, we have two lanes at many Chick-fil-A's now, and then not only do we have two lanes at Chick-fil-A, I have people waiting on me before I even get to the place where I'm usually supposed to order. It's going to come out fast. And when I drive up and that's not happening, I get frustrated and I feel entitled because I want my waffle fries and I want them fast. And this is where this sense of entitlement begins to fuel the necessary feeling of retaliating a wrong treating people badly being frustrated it's not that we just don't have the ability to wait well but when we wait we do retaliate a wrong here's another example have you ever been put on hold for longer than you believe is necessary and then when the person comes back on the line you feel the need to talk down to them What James here is getting at is that our ability to be patient should reveal maturity within us. Which, again, James is really pushing this idea of maturity all throughout his book. And so maturity is linked to our ability to be patient, to wait this is why he gives this example he talks about the early rains and the late rains these early rains would have come shortly after planting in palestine that's that's during late october early november and the late rains would follow as the crop crop is maturing as they're getting ready to do the harvest and this would have been in late march early excuse me late march early april james here is making a point the christian life is not primarily about the benefits or the fruit. If you were sold that the Christian life uh, is all about the blessings that you are going to receive, you were probably sold a works-based faith. That it's a transactional relationship between you being good and God blessing you. God is a good God who gives gifts. We learned that back in chapter 1. But our life is just as much about sowing as it is reaping. The Christian, like the farmer here who he's referring to in the passage, who is sowing his entire life into a field, can only know the true blessings of life by what they put into it. We cannot expect fruit from our labor if we do not sow. If you want to wait on the Lord well, don't be like the rich who hoard the good life until Jesus returns. No, give your whole life, your whole self, to the field that's right in front of you and work it. Be a diligent, faithful servant until Christ's coming again. And so then he moves on to say, Therefore, don't complain about one another or blame one another. For your troubles in life. God's will. God is the one who is going to judge what transpires here on earth. You just be faithful. And I think this is a very, it seems like maybe an awkward aside, but I think James here is anticipating an argument. And so I believe this is a really brilliant counter argument when uh, the people hear this and they hear that they need to wait well and not worry about the riches, don't worry about the possessions that they have in their life, but rather they should spend their whole energy on sowing into life, sowing into their field, being faithful and waiting on God and, expecting that Jesus is going to come again, and when he comes again, the Christians will be able to present a bountiful harvest and say, Jesus, this is what I've done with my life. And then James says here, I think he's anticipating this counter-argument that people would read this and say, yeah, but what about my neighbor who isn't doing this, James? What about the people I know who are hoarding everything that they have? Well, if they can do it, why can't I? James is saying, hey, don't judge them. You do you. God's going to judge everything that happens here on earth. But if you want to live a life that is what, he, again, he calls throughout the book perfect, which means being uh, fully consistent with what you believe and what you practice, then honor the Lord, plant where you are now, and be patient. The example that he gives of Job really backs up this admonition. He says to be patient through endurance. Job was not always patient, but he endured hardship and he was blessed because of it. And then he also talks about uh, the idea of judging your brothers. Well, Job's friends brought him down to their level of tumultuous emotion. If Job had kept his eyes on what was important on God, he would have not been rebuked by God so much towards the end of the book. We look to Job as an example of patience, endurance, and ultimately, in the end, being blessed by God. James then continues to move into this idea of our words. Swearing is what he says. That swearing is an evidence of impatience. When we talk about swearing, we're not talking about cursing, but rather making promises that you don't intend on keeping so that you can convince other people of your false character. When we become impatient and we lose self-control, we say things that we really shouldn't say. Uh, for example, we are in a conversation with someone and they're just ranting over and over and they're talking forever. And so what I'm going to do in my mind, I'm like, this is what I'm going to do, is I'm going to say whatever they're wanting me to say just to get out of this. I'm not going to mean it, but if I just say it, it'll shut them up. We should never need to use an oath, which is a false promise in the sense, to prove, oh, I mean what I'm saying. We should always mean what we're saying. James is saying, don't swear. Don't make these promises by heaven, by earth, any other oath. Don't make false promises, false statements with your words. Why? Well, we learned in chapter 3 of how important and how heavy a weight our words carry. Your word carries power because you were created in the likeness of the word. Your yes should be yes because the word's yes is always yes. Just don't be flaky. Man, I I, I really could preach on this all day, especially with college students. Just, man, make your yes be yes. If you say you're going to be somewhere, be there. If you say you're going to do something, do it. Because in those moments, you hold up the consistency of what you believe about God. It's like when I tell my wife I'm going to do the dishes and then I don't. I just say it because I want to uh, make her happy and then I don't do it. She sees an inconsistency within my character. So let your yes be yes. James has been concerned to help believers overcome the tendency to react like the world does when injustices are heaped on them. The Christian should have a proper attitude about life. If they did this, they could see themselves through to the other side. This is what James is talking about here in this passage. We are now in the end times since Jesus left until he returns. We're in what we're understanding as the end times. You and I have to have a proper attitude, one that is of patience, and patience filled with right action, being planted where we are, sowing into where we are, and making sure that our words are consistent with our character. If we could do this, we could easily see ourselves to the other side. Not only does James want to talk about uh, a proper uh, attitude, but also a proper way of acting. Let's go ahead and pick up in verse 13 through 18. It says this Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they should pray over him after anointing him with olive oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will restore to him health. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another so that you might be healed. The urgent request of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain for three years and six months. It didn't rain. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Once our attitude is centered on the reality that Jesus is coming back, then we have to act like it. Get out into the field. The most powerful action that you can do according to this passage is twofold, is to pray and to praise. Prayer to God is the proper outlet for feelings of sadness caused by suffering as we patiently endure throughout life. The persevering life is a prayerful life, and praise is the attributing to God our recognition of His good gifts in our lives despite harsh circumstances. The fact that we've made it this far should be praised. We aren't owed anything in life, which is a great lie that the enemy likes to tell our generation that you are owed something. We're not. Everything that we have in our life is a gift, a good gift given by God. Therefore, we ought to praise Him. But times of spiritual weakness or physical sickness are usually occasions in which it's very difficult to be patient, to pray, and to praise and so, James here really gives a long discussion on what is happening here for spiritual weakness and physical sickness. He talks about uh, that the elders should come around and anoint somebody with olive oil. Uh, anointing with oil was the equivalent in James's day of applying medication. Uh, oil among the ancients was highly valued for its therapeutic. Qualities. It was more of a refreshment, soothing comfort. It didn't really do a lot for really serious ailments, but people would drink it, they would rub it on them as medication, and it would soothe them. And as a kind of an aside here, I think because of this nature and the historical uh, aspect of what we're talking about here, that this passage would be more descriptive rather than prescriptive, which just means this, that James is describing a practice that was common for his day, and not necessarily saying that this is something that Christians should be doing even until this day. I don't think he's giving a command. He's not prescribing something, but rather he's just describing what is happening within his context, that the church should come around and they should also um, anoint with oil or to help soothe any pain. James instructed that during these times of weakness, spiritual or physical, that Christians should call their church elders to visit them and to pray to them and to minister them the anointing in Jesus' name. And uh, prayer here is the more significant of the two ministries performed by the elders. Prayer is the main verb. It is the action verb. And if you remember back to English, uh, anoint here is a participle. It's an ongoing action. It's that while uh, you are anointing, you need to pray. It's the big idea that um, it is assumed that you're going to go and anoint this oil, but while doing it, you need to pray because that is what's ultimately going to help them. So to illustrate the power of prayer, James refers to Elijah's experience. Um, To be in line with the will of God is to be somebody who is fervent in their prayer life. Uh, Elijah was able to control the rain through prayer. Now, he couldn't control God, but he could enact God's power through prayer. And the same is true for us, that you and I... And uh, by virtue of our connection to God, we are able to ascertain His will, to plead with Him, and by having that open dialogue, that open communication between you and the Lord, and you're able to ascertain His will, you are then able to enact it where you are planted now. So this truth is applicable for believers today. James was not just discussing sickness in general, nor necessarily severe illnesses that doctors cannot heal. What James is talking about here is the sickness that results from unrighteous behavior. Think about it. Think about the weight that sin puts on you, mentally and emotionally. Having to hide it. Not getting any sleep. Constantly worrying that someone's going to find out. Hating yourself for being held captive by it? James realizes that there can be healing when the church prays for these people, and then they find healing through confession. Actually, dozens of studies have shown that active confession uh, is linked to less stress, improved sleep, and better card- cardiovascular function. We know that better sleep is also associated to enhanced immune function and general better health, which correlate to better mental health as well. as well. James here is encouraging the church to surround each other in times of weakness. I mean, honestly, if you look around, you can see spiritual sickness all over the place with how people are dealing with things going through their lives, how they're able to um, interact with uh, circumstances with each other. And as a community, it is the demand the command of of James to surround these people, to pray for them, and to uplift them. So here's the truth is that you're not alone, that your sin is not unique, and there is rest in Jesus. Finally, what James continues to speak on after he's understood that we need to have a proper attitude and proper actions to follow it up, he talks about what it means to be living Uh, in the faith, in this community. He says in verse 19 and 20, My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his life from death and cover a multitude of sins. So James is concluding by explaining how a brother who is erred could return to the fellowship of God and resume living by faith. Um, This is not talking about a loss of salvation, but how to help our brothers and sisters out when they get off track. And we all get off track when we're just going through life and then we start leaning too much on ourselves rather than leaning on God and we just start living like the world. And so James here says, bring them back, surround them, bring them back, help them get back on track. And when we do, he says, that we save their life from death and cover a multitude of sins. And this description of forgiveness harks back to an Old Testament usage where the biblical writers described sins as covered when they were forgiven. This would have been understandable for James because he's a Jewish believer writing to other Jews. And so the idea here is that when we walk through life with one another, and again, remember his audience is scattered, and so we have the benefit that they don't even have. But when we walk through this life together, we keep each other out of the fire. When we stray, we keep each other in check. And in doing so, we save each other's lives from a hardened heart, which is death, and then protect each other's integrity and relationship with God, which is the covering of sins. When you're looking to be in community with people, you want to be looking for people who are going to save you from a hard heart against the Spirit and protect your integrity and your relationship with God. And so what do we do? Well, (laughs) we're done with the book of James, that's what. But uh, really, what we talked about today can be summed up with this. Do you really want to become truly wise and live in a way where you love God and you love others, then, as you wait on the Lord, live a life that's centered in Him, and in doing so, you will love Him as you also serve others. Whatever truth you hear, put it into practice. When you treat, you need to treat everyone as Jesus has treated you. You need to use your words as a way to build up life around you. You will need to uh, submit to God. Resist the devil, and find intimacy with Christ. You need to recognize that what you have is not yours, but a resource for God to use. And you need to carry one another as you work in the field around you. And that is the book of James.